I uh, appreciate your prayers last week. Those of you who uh, keep track of these things know that I was sick. What's going on with this mic? Where am I coming out of here? Am I coming out of this one? All right. Um, but so if I if I hack and cough, it's not TB, anything really bad. Uh, but it is kind of the after effects of the flu, which went through our house uh, this last week. And, uh, Karen is still home. With, uh, it's gotten out and going. What's going on here? Got a wire. Sounds like the sound's coming in. Is okay. We got another mic. life and your spiritual growth and health, and I want you to know these things that we're up here talking about each week because I believe that they are fundamentally transformative to your life, that the things that we talk about when we talk about Jesus and we talk about the gospel, when we talk about the scriptures that they're important not simply as matters of history or of theology or of the teachings of an ancient document, but that they are the kinds of things that bring help to the hurting and life to the dead and forgiveness to the sinful. And so they're absolutely, if I, because I love you, the best thing that I have to give you. And you need to know that, that as we look at the Scriptures together, that, that these things I'm telling you, I'm not telling you simply because I like to hear my own voice. Although if you know me a little bit, you know I do like to talk. Uh, but it's simply not because I like to hear my own voice, but because I love you. And I want your life to be in alignment with the Scriptures because it is that kind of life that leads to the life abundant that Jesus promised. And if we love one another, we should want that for each other most of all. Amen? So, uh, as we get into this week, what we're going to be talking about is how Jesus is our gift righteousness. And I've said this over and over again, but it bears repeating again that the fundamental difference between Christianity and everything else, between belief in Jesus and following him and every other belief system that is out there, is one of spelling. It's really a difference of two letters. Everything else in, in all of the world, whatever kind of philosophy or worldview you want to come up with that people follow and devote their lives to, 
is spelled like this, D-O, do. And it's a list of things that you are then supposed to do, which is going to give your life meaning and purpose and value and and to uh, transform your life spiritually and so forth. So if you're, if you're a Muslim, you have the five pillars. And so you practice almsgiving and five times daily prayer facing Mecca. And you practice uh, the pilgrimage, the hajj. Uh, you uh, say to yourself the right confession that there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet and all that, right? Five pillars of Islam. Or, or if you're a Buddhist, you believe in the noble eightfold path, these things that you, these spiritual exercises that you practice on your way to attaining nirvana, which is union with the universe, where you, like Neo in the Matrix, become one with everything and bullets don't touch you and all this kind of stuff because you, or Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. If you've seen that movie, great Buddhist movie. Uh, because you attain, as you attain union with the universe, you can attain power over it and do things that you can't normally do, like run straight up trees and fly through the air with a sword. Okay, that's the idea behind Buddhism. And but it's still a list of things that you must do to attain to whatever the goal is. All other kinds of religious belief are similar. They all have their list. They all have their list. Christianity, biblical Christianity, following Jesus as the scriptures describe, is spelled this way. D-O-N-E. Done. Because it's not on the basis of what you must do, but on the basis of what Christ has done for you, that you enter into a relationship with God. And that is, in a sense, a summary of what I'm going to be talking about, that Jesus is our gift righteousness, that on the basis of what he has done for us, that we have the right to have standing before God and enter into relationship with him. Amen? Amen. Now, I want to to show you where one of the places Jesus himself talks about this, and this is in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. It's a little parable. It doesn't take long to read. The point is pretty obvious, but I want to spend some time here. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. 
For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, according to the text, as you read it carefully, Jesus is telling this little story, this parable specifically to address the problem of people who trust in their own righteousness and what they can do to be acceptable to God and who look down on other people with contempt because of their list of stuff that they perform. And they believe that God accepts them based on their morality and goodness, and they think that everybody else has a lack of goodness relative to them. And they are the kind of people who believe that they, rather than God, are the standard by which God ought to judge. And so Jesus tells a parable about two people, a Pharisee and a tax collector. And we want to look at the first one first. Uh, A lot of you who have grown up in the church are conditioned more or less to think of automatically the Pharisees as the bad guys. That's true, right? The Pharisees, after all, are the guys who conspired with the religious leaders in Jesus' day to put Jesus to death. Uh, They're always the ones who are opposing Jesus in all of the gospel accounts. Ergo, they must be bad people. And we're kind of conditioned to think of them that way. But if you met a Pharisee, you would actually probably think this guy's a pretty good dude. These were people who took the Bible and the Old Testament law seriously. They were highly respected in their own day. They were men who tried to go above and beyond in their relationship with God because they believed with all their heart that the resurrection of the dead was God's reward for those who lived a righteous life. And they wanted to be sure that they were among the people who received it. They took their relationship with God seriously. Since the Mosaic law prohibited eating any kind of unclean animals, they would put cheesecloth over all their cups and pour whatever they were about to drink through it so that they would filter out even the gnats and mosquitoes and fruit flies that might have got down into their wine. Many Jews tithed, but the Pharisees tithed 10% even of their garden herbs. You know, you ladies, maybe you've got little... Garden herbs growing in the window, you know, little basil plants and uh, rosemary and whatever sprouting. They would tithe even that stuff. And they would take those little flakes of parsley or whatever, and they would count out the individual flakes. Ten percent of those go to the Lord. They were serious about their relationship with God. They fasted two days out of every seven so they could remind themselves on those two days of their complete dependence on God for everything in their life, including with the food that they ate. They wouldn't share a table with anyone that they considered to be a sinner because they felt that that might make them ritually unclean and thus unable to worship God at the temple. And because many of them, and they did all of these things because they all wanted to avoid doing anything that could in any way come in between them and their relationship with God. And 
and could even remotely be considered a violation of the law because they wanted to be absolutely sure that they were among the people who received the, the resurrection of the dead as a reward from God for their righteous life. These were admirable people. And I think if you and I met one of them, we'd be impressed by their level of personal holiness. In fact, I think a lot of us, if we met one of them, would be pretty sure we wouldn't be willing to go through all the hoops they went through every day of their life or their entire life for the sake of their relationship with God. We'd go, I don't know if I can live up to that. That's a lot to put up with. I don't know if I can deal with all those requirements and restrictions. And the only reason I would ever do that is if I really believed, as they did, that it was all necessary to experience a relationship with God and to have eternal life with Him. And the Pharisees all really believed that it was. And so they were willing to do it all, every little jot and tittle they did without any complaint or question. Because if you really believe with all your heart that doing all this list of stuff is essential for you to go to heaven and that not doing any of it might mean that you are cut off and shut out from God's presence forever. If you really believe that, you're willing to do anything, aren't you? And the downside to all this is that what seems like a hard way of life at the outset eventually just becomes part of your routine way of doing things. And righteousness goes from being an unattainable ideal to being something you believe you're achieving pretty much every day. And you develop one of the worst, nastiest, most horrible cases of spiritual sinful pride that you can imagine. And that, of course, undermines completely all your claims to being righteous, right? Which is a real problem. But the problem with being spiritually prideful is that when you are one of the greatest practitioners of it, you yourself can't see it. And so Jesus takes pains to point it out. Catch this particular Pharisee's prayer. He says, God, I mean, you almost have to get a different tone of voice when you read this. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. I don't know if you noticed, but the most frequently repeated word in, that, in those two sentences is the word I. I do this, and I do that, and I do this, and I do not do that, and aren't you impressed by my wonderful specialness, God, who appears once to the guys five times of the repeated word I. It's kind of amazing you can pack that much prideful self-righteousness into just two sentences. It really is. I mean, this is a feat. And this is like, by the way, 
just to put it in perspective, from a biblical perspective, for a human being to claim that they are more righteous than everybody else, it would be like me going down to the chili bowl here, bowling a 40 and claiming that I am really awesome because the person I bowled with only got 25. <laughs> okay, yeah, you did get a better score, but you're a long way from even relatively good. Amen? You're a really long way from being a 300 bowler. And the fact is, is that the fact that he uses this little prayer as a little bragamony shows how how far away from God he really is because he actually thinks that God views the world the way that he does and judges according to the same standard. He th- believes that God grades on the curve and that, well, of course, I am the head of the class. What Jesus' hearers are about to discover is that what this man believes is fundamentally false, that God does not judge by the same standard. And this guy is actually not at the head of the class. Despite all his righteous behavior, despite all the effort that he's made, he's actually worse than the tax collector He's comparing himself favorably with. Now, the tax collector, on the other hand, is the other guy in the story. And within Judaism of Jesus' day, the, you were if you were a tax collector, you were the lowest of the low. You were literally the scum of the earth. And it wasn't simply like in our day, you know, it's tax season now. Some of you may owe money. Some of you are making low-interest loans to Uncle Sam every year, and so you're hoping to get a refund. Um, but either way, nobody likes to pay their taxes, right? And it's not simply that you didn't like to pay your taxes and Jewish people didn't want to pay their taxes either that tax collectors were regarded as such a big deal. It's, it's more than that. It's that the Romans were not just, they weren't just the ruling authority. They were people who had come in and conquered your nation. And so these are the imperial overlords. And then on top of that, when they came in and they took over an area, what they would do is they would auction off certain government positions to the local populace, and one of those was tax collector. So if you bought one of those jobs, you were automatically a collaborator with the enemy. And then in in addition to that, the Romans told the tax collector you have to collect a certain amount of money, but they didn't set a limit as to how much in addition to that you could collect. And they didn't pay you a salary out of which you got paid, so it was just understood that you were going to collect more than what the Romans required so that you could support yourself. Now imagine if there was no set rate for what you had to pay the IRS but they could just take out of your hide whatever they felt was fair. Do you think there would be a situation ripe for abuse, corruption, and oppression in that? Yes. And then imagine that it's not the United States government, a part of which you get to vote for, 
not that part, but a part of which you get to vote for. And if they raise your taxes too high, you get to vote them out of office. But no, this is a conquering power. This is, imagine this, this would be like the Iranians come in and take over your country and they appoint part of your own countrymen to collect taxes from you and they say, collect whatever you want, just make sure we get this much. It's a situation ripe for abuse and oppression. And on top of that, of course, if you couldn't pay your taxes, it wasn't as if you just work out a payment plan or maybe put it on your credit card and pay it off as you can. No, if you couldn't pay your taxes, you and as many of members of your family as were required were sold into slavery to pay off your debt. This is a bad situation. These are not nice people that sign up for this job. And so they were regarded as the lowest of the low because your livelihood literally depended on abusing your fellow countrymen. And yet you had paid for the privilege of doing so. And Jesus refers to the tax collector this way. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. In other words, the tax collector is not only aware of his sin, he's also repentant meaning he's wanting to turn away from what he's doing. He goes to the temple just like the Pharisee, but he doesn't really feel that he has the right to be there, so he sort of stands on the edge. He's like somebody who feels really bad about themselves, and this is not a comment on anybody here currently, uh, but who sits in the very back. (laughs) Okay. Now, again, that's not a comment on anybody here currently. (laughs) Okay. You're not more righteous if you sit in the front, all right? Although we do have some nice seats there up here every week, (laughs) okay? Um, If this was a rock concert, these would be the gold circle up here. Uh, But seriously, a lot of times when people are feeling bad about themselves, they stand at a distance. They stand at a distance from you relationally. They stand at a distance sometimes from you physically. And this tax collector is since he feels that he is relationally at a distance from God, he stands physically at a distance from God. And traditionally, you know, Jews in Jesus' day did not pray like we pray. You know, we we are taught from Sunday school on up. You know, now, every boys and girls, all of you fold your hands and close your eyes. And that's good in Sunday school because that teaches the kid to concentrate on what he's doing and not be, you know, drawing on the other kid's paper, you know, starting a fight, giving wet willies, whatever. You know, you're trying to get the kid to focus on we're going to pray now. And so we teach each other to fold your hands and close your eyes and, you know, do that, right? Jews didn't pray that way. Jews prayed like this. They would look up to heaven and they would lift their hands to heaven and they would look up toward God. This guy won't lift his eyes to heaven. Instead, what he does is he pounds his chest and he says, God, be merciful to me, a 
sinner. Because he is deeply, deeply aware of what he has done. And he is ashamed of himself. And you'll notice the contrast between these two prayers. The one man, though he is a sinner, deeply feels his guilt and confesses and calls out to God. And to the extent that he is the subject of his prayer, it's not his goodness, but his wickedness that's the reason for it. And it's a humble prayer, not a self-righteous one. He knows that he's a sinner, and he's so he's literally begging God for mercy. Mercy is that quality of God where God does not give us what we do deserve. Grace is the flip side of the same coin, that God gives us what we do not deserve and withholds from us by his mercy what we do. And so he calls out to God for mercy, and he's hoping that in spite of the fact that he richly deserves God's judgment, that God won't judge him in spite of that. And then Jesus says the most shocking thing you can imagine. He says, and I tell you, this man, which man? The tax collector, the wicked guy, the collaborator, the oppressor, the one who abused his people, that guy. The guy who may have been responsible for having some of his own people sold as slaves to satisfy this guy's greed to collect money. That guy went home to his house justified. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And if you were standing in, G- in Jesus' presence as he's telling this story, you would have heard audible gasps. People would have gone, oh! that they cannot believe what Jesus is saying. Are you telling me, Jesus, that a Pharisee who is working his way to heaven as best as he knows how, who is obeying even more than the Mosaic law required because he is self-righteous, stands condemned before God, and a tax collector who is the lowest of the low, who is the scum of the earth, who is the worst person in our society, that that person is acceptable to God? Is that what you're saying, Jesus? Yes, that's exactly what he's saying. And I want you to feel the shock of the Scriptures. Try to imagine this. Try to imagine that you're best friends with a Roman Catholic and you tell them that a local car thief has been forgiven of his sins, but their bishop is going to hell and you get the idea. of the kind of impact that this kind of statement had when Jesus delivered it. God not only does not have the same idea of righteousness that we do, but he totally 
rejects our idea. Totally rejects it. In fact, this is what he says in Isaiah 64, 6, a verse which this Pharisee would have known. All your righteousness is as filthy rags. The word there literally means, filthy rags, literally translates, this is the nicest way I can say this, menstrual cloth. In a Jewish context, even touching that stuff made you ritually unclean, unable to go to the temple to worship. And Jesus would affirm that. He would say all of our attempts to be righteous are as something nasty. Because all of our righteousness is still sinful, still touched and tainted and spoiled by sin. It still amounts to coming to God defiled. And we can't be righteous enough on our own. We can't be more righteous than the Pharisee, which God condemned for their pride and their self-righteousness. And this is where the story gets confusing for a lot of people. How can you say that? How can you as a person who has any sense of justice and morality and truth stand up and affirm what Jesus taught? How can you do that? How did the tax collector go home justified before God when the Pharisee who had in one sense com committed far less serious sin go home still in it? How is that possible? And it's because of this, that there are only two kinds of righteousness that God accepts. Perfect righteousness of the sort that he alone possesses. And gift righteousness the sort that he alone gives to those who seek it from him. And since none of us is as perfectly, in, innately, characteristically good as God, then the only kind of righteousness that we can have and the only kind that God is going to accept and receive from us is gift righteousness, something that's not native to us, something that's an alien righteousness that God has to impart and impute to us. How did that happen? Well, the Bible says this, that at the cross, Jesus was killed, and not just killed as a martyr, not just killed as a, as a person who died in the name of a good cause, but killed for us, killed for you and me. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says it this way. God made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God. Theologians call that the great exchange. And basically the way it works is this, that Jesus dies on the cross and he dies for our sin so that when we place our trust in him, there's a magnificent swap that happens. And Jesus and I, have you ever, how many of you guys ever traded baseball cards or football cards, Pokemon cards? I don't care, whatever. Okay, you trade something and you're hoping to get something better out of the trade. This is the greatest trade that has ever been made. 
We come to Jesus with all of our busted stuff, all of our attempts at being righteous, all of our failure, all of our sin, all of our nastiness, all of what Jesus calls through the prophet Isaiah filthy rags, all of it. And we say, Jesus, it ain't much, but it's all I got. I'm a sinner. And I deserve to go to hell. What can you do with that? And Jesus says, I'll tell you what, I'll trade you. And I'll give you my righteousness in exchange. I'll take your sin and I will put it on me at the cross. And I'll give you my righteousness in exchange. How about it? And we are able by faith to make that magnificent swap that great exchange and receive a righteousness that's not ours, but it belongs to Him. And get rid of all of our junk by having it laid on Jesus at the cross. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says it this way, For by grace... You have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast, so that no one can stand before God like that Pharisee and say, you know, God, you're welcome. (laughs) Okay? No one can do that. Why? Because Jesus paid it all. And all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but Jesus washed it white as snow. Amen? By faith, by the grace of God, I'm able to say to him, I have no righteousness of my own that you would accept. And I know that you are holy, and so you do not rate on the curve. And I know that it's true what people believe, that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. But the problem is, is that there's only been one good person, and that's Jesus. And since I'm not him, I need forgiveness. And I need a righteousness that didn't come from me to make me acceptable to God. And it really comes down to a choice. And you may have come here this morning with a deep awareness of your own sinfulness. You may be literally or figuratively one of those who sit in the back and who have trouble looking up to heaven toward God. And you feel relationally and physically distant from him because of what you've done. And you are standing at a distance from God. And if that is true, I have the most wonderful news for you. That God, through Jesus Christ, closed the distance between the two of you at the cross. And he wants to take all of your brokenness, all of your hurt, all of your pain, all of the suffering you have endured, all of the sin you have committed, all of the guilt that you feel, all the brokenness that has entered into your life, all the destruction that you have brought into it through your sin. 
And if you will trust in Jesus Christ, the crucified and resurrected Savior, he will take all of that and give you a new heart, a new life in the Spirit of God and bring you life from the dead, both now and forever. But some of you, some of you, I'm confident of this too. Some of you are coming to God like the Pharisee. And as much as we laugh, you really think in your heart of hearts, God, I'm awesome and you're welcome. And of course God would want me in his presence because I really am that good. And I'm so much better than everybody else that I know. And I don't know where exactly the cutoff is, God, but it's somewhere to the left of me by a considerable margin. And if that is you this morning, I also have good news and bad news for you. The bad news is, guess what? You're not awesome, and God does not approve. The good news is that everyone who humbles himself or herself can be exalted and lifted up by the Son of God through faith in Him. You first have to repent of your own pride and self-righteousness and come to the only one who's acceptable to God. And maybe you came here today as a committed believer in Jesus Christ and you were wondering why I'm spending all this time, weeks and weeks and weeks, talking about the gospel from different perspectives. Because that's what we're doing talking about the gospel from different perspectives held at a different angle so that we can see the reflected light of the glory of the gospel in a different way. And it's because if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, believe it or not, you never move on from here. You never get so mature in your faith that you don't need the gospel anymore. You never get to the point where you go, well, God, you know, I grew up out of that. I'm really mature now. I don't need to hear about Jesus' death and resurrection anymore. You know why? Because none of us ever get to the point where we are sinless anymore. We all need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day and realize that it isn't because of us that God uses us. It's in spite of us that God uses us. It isn't because I am so awesome, and that's great that you are maturing and growing and leading and serving and using your spiritual gift, and that's fantastic. It says it should be. But guess what? It isn't because you're awesome, but because Jesus is that he chooses to use you. And when you sin, as I do, and as I know that you do as well, even though you probably wouldn't admit to it, at least not in any great specificity, a lot of times we can feel like, man, my relationship with God is terrible because, look, this happened and this happened and I did this and I did that again and, and this is the 587th time this week I've confessed that one. And guess what? We go back to the gospel and we realize this is an area also for which Christ died. 
and for which I have forgiveness. And because I have the Spirit of God, the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, I can live the new life. And I don't have to do that anymore. I don't have to be this way anymore. And you can get up and every day be full of fresh hope. That's the gospel. Jesus gives new life to the dead, even to those who believe in him. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that even though we are exactly like other men, sinners, extortioners, adulterers, liars, thieves, tax collectors, you name it, we've done it, we've thought it, we've wanted it, we've desired rebellion against you, and we wanted nothing to do with you. We've even come up with whole philosophies and religions to prevent us from having anything to do with you. Father, we pray, first of all, a prayer of thanks that you saw fit, not because we are great and good, but because you are, to reach down and to save the likes of us and to bring us into your own family by your power. By the crucifixion of your Son, you took away our sin, and by the, his resurrection, you offer us new life. Father, I pray if anyone here has never made that great exchange, the magnificent swap of their sin for the righteousness of Christ, so that they might be acceptable to you and enter into your own family as your adopted child. Father, I pray that today, this moment, would be that moment. And Father, for those of us who have known you for many years, I pray that it would never get stale and that we would always remember that Jesus Christ died for this sin too and that one. For this ingrained sinful habit, for that personality issue that has afflicted me for as long as I can remember, Jesus laid down his life for that sinful cast of mind and behavior that every day might be full of hope, knowing that you will bring us to yourself and make us perfect, even as Christ is perfect. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.